location. Undisclosed. Access. Ready. Team Buck Headquarters. The safe haven. Where a radio signal transmits from the middle of nowhere. To the squad of patriots. This is the Freedom Hunt with Buck Sexton. Well, everybody, we are very pleased, very lucky to have with us the one and only Jedediah Bila this week on the Freedom Hut podcast. She's an author, a TV host. Many of you know her from Fox News, from The View. If you are true original Saturday squad, you may know her even from the Blaze TV days when it was GBTV way back when. Uh, now she's just big time all around. She has a new book coming out, Do Not Disturb. How I Ghosted My Cell Phone to Take Back My Life. Ms. Jedediah Bila, great to have you on. How are you, Buck Saxton? Wow, the blaze. That was, for, that was like a lifetime ago. Isn't that such a throwback? Jedediah, we, we did our first panel show together almost, almost seven years ago to the month. I mean, maybe it was seven years and, let's say, three or four months or something. Long time. Wow, that was my first job. That was my first television job that I actually got paid for. Because really? Before that, I had been doing, yeah, before that, I had been doing a little bit of Fox News, MSNBC, CNBC, just popping on here and there uh, while I was teaching. So remember, I used to be a teacher and a dean at a, at a high school in New York City. And yeah. Glenn was the first person to actually pay me in this business, which I was excited static about i was like wow you mean i get to do this and i get paid so that was my first job that was my first real job glenn i look i've said this to lots of folks before and i really do mean it for whatever the future of the blaze is and look they've had lots of trouble now and, and everyone knows about that glenn's contribution to young conservatism i would put it up against anybody out there right now i mean in terms of what he did as an individual for young conservative talent I sit around and people are like, well, what do you mean, Buck? I say, oh, okay. Tell me a conservative that, there are, look, there are a couple exceptions, like Ben Shapiro was never really involved with the Blaze at all. He was at Breitbart, right? I mean, there are some people that are really big mm-hmm. now that, but I mean, you and Essie Cup and Tara Setmayer and Guy Benson and Pete Hegseth and Katie Pavlich. I mean, you get on this whole list of all these, they were all doing the Blaze back in the day, you know? So I feel like that yeah. gets overlooked. Yeah, was, those are fun times. Yeah. We, we, had, we had fun on those shows. I've never, That's by the way, I, to, to this day, people are like, I tell them, they're always amazed when they find out how many people go and do a lot of TV f- completely for free. And I think it's the only business where this really happens, by the way. Like, they don't get paid at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's shocking. I always tell people you could be famous. You can be TV news famous and completely broke. That's entirely possible. In fact, the first couple of years that I was in the business, I was in debt because I was I was teaching and I used to get called to do Hannity's Great American Panel and MSNBC would call me in in the morning to host a, uh, to do a Alex Wagner show at the time. I think it was called Now with Alex Wagner. And I realized I had to make a choice. I was either going to stay in teaching and, you know, move up to administration and do that or I was going to drop it and go do this because I couldn't be in two places at the same time. And I had to drop my paying job and work for free for a chunk of time. And I, I built up debt that then I had to dig my way out of. Because the other thing people don't realize, Buck, is that this business is expensive. You have to, especially in the beginning, you have to get the headshots. You have to, you know, I had to buy my own wardrobe to show up on air all the time. The women especially are doing a lot of stuff outside, like got to get our hair colored and cut more than we ever would because we're going to be on air and you got to get that manicure and you got to... It's a lot of money that goes into it, 
even to this minute now, honestly, like when I do a TV appearance and, you know, sometimes I'll have to go get a hair blowout or I'll have it's, to go do this. Or, it is, it it's costs such a, a lot of money. It's, and look, you're somebody, you were, you were a host on The View, so I mean, you, you've made it to the mountaintop. You, you can tell people it is a <laughs> yeah. brutal it is a brutal biz. I try to tell folks this. They're like, oh, it must be fun. You go on TV. And I'm like, yeah, think think about what it's like when you're running behind on your bills and you're showing up and you're being told that maybe one day at one of these places, maybe one day they'll start to pay you. But in the meantime, sit in the green room for three hours. They may not even use you and they're not going to give you a dollar, but you can't afford the reputational damage of getting up and saying no at MSNBC right. or at CNN or wherever like that's the reality of what this business is like. I tell people that they're like, no way. I'm like, yeah, it's that bad. Yeah. I, I remember I used to do Larry Kudlow's show uh, for CNBC and it was not in New York city. And they, they used to, they, they did send a car for me, but it was this long trek out there and everybody was thinking that was, Oh, that's her job. And I was like, well, not really. I still have to figure out a way to make money because I'm not getting paid to do any of this. So yeah, I think that's something. And that's not to say there isn't, you know, like, of course, when you get to The View or, you know, you're hosting on Fox News and stuff like that. Yes, you're, you know, a lot of people are making uh, pretty good money. But yeah, I mean, hosts know, are making seven figures at these places. So people assume well, if the hosts are making two million, five million, 15 million, the people that are on TV like five or 10 times a week have got to be making six figures. Uh-uh. That's not how it no, works. No, no. Even my first control. I mean, you know, I don't remember my exact, to be honest with you, what you know, how, what it looked like at the blaze. But I, even my first contributor contract was my first contributor contract was less money than what I was making teaching in New York city by a significant margin. Yeah. I was, you know, I was a dean of the school, so I was doing okay, but I still was like, and I was all over the television. I was doing all the main shows and I'm sure the perception was, it's funny, actually, if you search people's, you know, like, they post on websites people's net worth and one of my friends one of my best friends actually pointed it out to me and said wow people think you have this much money and i i laugh i'm like wow that's that would be amazing if i did yeah. but oh yeah nope not quite there yet <laughs> yeah no i i, I remember I, i've told people this because i i got a fair amount of people that are either in or, or just left you know they're, they're thinking about leaving or they just left the government and they're like hey man like i, I respect what you've done and i think i want to get into doing national security analysis on TV or something like this. And, and I always tell them, like, well, first of all, I need you to understand that I took a pay cut to go work at The Blaze. Second of all, I need you right. to, from the government. Second of all, I need you to understand that the first offer I received in media ever was for $30,000 a year, um, which I'm not saying, I'm not saying, like, look, there are parts of the country where you do fine, but in New York City, they, you, you actually qualify for public housing in New York City on thirty thousand dollars a year because it's because it's such a, a high yeah. cost of living. And that was in New York that I had that first uh, offer immediately. So you know, it, it's it's a pretty. Uh, I did not take that job, by the way, but just just putting that out there. <laughs> um, but it's it's pretty. And I was almost thirty, right? I mean, I've been working for for a number of years. So, uh, but one thing you ran over, and we got to get to your book, and we got to talk about the media and Trump. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff in just a second, everyone. I know you're like. This is what happens when you get two old friends together. We're catching up, and you're getting to hear it. Um, but you were a dean of discipline at an all was it an all boys high school? Interesting. No, it was co-ed. Oh, it was co-ed. Okay, okay. Yeah, but so high school boys would get called into the office, and you would have to discipline them. <laughs> 
Uh, it happens. Yeah. I mean, I was a teacher. <laughs> okay. you know, I, I was, I love how you think this is funny, but no, I was a teacher at a, I, I taught in a bunch of different places. Actually, I taught at a Catholic school, a high school in Staten Island. And then I shipped it over to, I taught seven grades, seven through 12 um, in New York City. It was co-ed, but I was an academic dean. So it was mostly for issues related to performance in classrooms, conflicts with teachers, I was also teaching at the school, so kind of I can like tell a you, job I wh- when I but got yeah. in trouble in high school, Jedediah, uh, I had to deal with a, an ancient Jesuit priest, and y- you guys look <laughs> nothing alike. I can tell you that. There's, there's yeah, nothing, you know like, nothing similar between I'm, you two. I can be pretty scary, though, honestly. Like, a lot of the kids told me later, years later, wow, you really, like, scared me. You have this kind of, because, you know, you go into teacher mode. And you can be pretty frightening. You'd be plus I'm like a crazy Italian, so you know I I could fly off the handle a little bit. So Wait, would you go? Would occasionally? Would you have to go almost full Staten Island? Because I know that's where you know. For those oh, who don't yeah. know, Jedediah is a Staten Island original. I'm a Staten Island original. When you get me mad, the Staten Island comes out. In fact, it was funny because I just recorded uh, the audiobook version of uh, hashtag Do Not Disturb for that. It comes out in October, but. The guy that was listening to me, who was producing it and helping me out, interrupted me at one point, and he was like, wow, the accent just came out hot and heavy. It was because I was talking about a story with an ex-boyfriend, and I was pissed. So all of a sudden, I go from, like, talking very much like this and very to, like, he didn't know what, and <laughs> full-on Italian, like, Sicilian, Staten Island. So, yeah, if yeah. people don't know that, I'm just, like, old red-eye if I've got any red eyes, like old viewers on here or Fox News, the Italian came out quite a bit. And even on The View, honestly, I would get called out all the time by viewers that would be like, wow, her accent is so thick, depending upon what argument we'd be having. Well, see, this is funny day. because because regional accents, I feel like, can get triggered by, by different things. You know, I, in my experience, <laughs> for example, I have known some Southerners. And with increased libations, things get a little more Southern. With New Yorkers, it's <laughs> yeah. like... You'll never hear somebody go as New York as when somebody steals their parking spot. Then all of a sudden you're like, I didn't yeah. even know that guy was from New York. Hey, you think this is your parking spot? You think this is your, you know, like all of a sudden it comes out in a big way. So the rate, it's, yeah, it's almost like you're, you're like, yeah, but Buck, you're like New York City. You're still very, even when you get mad, you're very polished and proper. Like, Oh, I'm, well, I'm from Manhattan, Manhattan. So I don't really count. Yeah, yeah no, no, I always tell people this. Manhattan is Manhattan. not, <laughs> the Manhattan accent <laughs> is like, no accent. That's what the Manhattan accent is. I know. It's funny. My husband and I, my husband's from New Jersey, and he doesn't have an accent at all. He's not Italian. Um, and we were watching an episode of Jersey Shore, because what people don't know is I love reality TV. I, I'm, it's really bad. I could watch that, that nonsense forever. And he's like, wow, the accents. And I'm like, what accent? So I was like, "That's what are you talking about? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> it was like I was, I don't even hear it because that's me. That's how I talk in real life, especially when I'm around my family. Oh, well, you know where you get a lot of it? When I, was, when I was at the NYPD, it was, uh, it was very, like the cops all have real New York accents. I mean, like that's because they generally come from the yeah. boroughs, right? Not a lot of cops are Manhattan born and raised. They're usually... overwhelmingly brooklyn queens actually a lot of them are from nassau county out in long island and and they have these like these legit thick new york accents and the moment they hear somebody talking like me they're like oh okay 
We know your deal. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh. Do people even know, Bucko? Do people even know you're from New York? I don't even know if I'd know. You're so your 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 speech is so clean. Well, thank you. No, people think that actually I'm. Uh, I think it's because the floppy. We call it the swoop, but like the floppy hair and my my preference for uh, seersucker and boat shoes. They sometimes think that I'm from the <laughs> south, and I have some southern yes. some southern stuff going on. But a lot of my uh, yes. a lot of my audience, oh. I ask them if I could have y'all permission because y'all is a great contraction. You know, it does make a lot of sense. Oh yeah. And they've given me yeah. they've given me some right to do that. Wait, I need I did it before. We, we're going to get to the book in just a moment here. We're speaking to Jedediah yeah. Bila who you should all know from just media. She's been all over the place. Um, but I think, see, here's the thing. You're in New York. I'm obviously a New Yorker, too. But we're both conservatives. I think very reasonable, and I would dare say personable conservatives. Right now, though, Jedediah, I, I feel like if I'm not professionally engaging in politics, I'm, I have my head on a swivel. I'm here in D.C. now, but back in New York, too, more than ever before. What I'm trying to say is, Things feel crazier now than they've ever been since I've been doing this by a lot. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I, I think the Trump derangement syndrome, I mean, and I wasn't a big Trump supporter, so it's not like I've been in, you know, Trump's corner since the beginning and that's who I wanted to win. And I agree with everything he does and everything he says. You know, that's not that's not who I am. And it's not because I have anything particularly against Trump. It's just that. You know, I'm one of those people that I wake up and I tell you what I think, and sometimes you're going to agree with it, and sometimes you're not. I'm, I'm not a Republican loyalist. I'm not a, a, a loyalist to a certain politician. Or So sometimes I like what he does, sometimes I don't. But in New York City, the hatred of Trump is so intense that if someone says something to me, and I'm talking about people I know, if someone says something to me and I'm even remotely positive or even remotely neutral – the rage that comes at me and just the lecture I have to listen to, it's really unbelievable. And I think he's brought that out in people more than ever before. And I, and I keep trying to figure out why. And I think one of the reasons why is because he's not afraid to engage. He'll engage the media. He'll engage. He'll tell you if you're acting a certain way. He'll laugh at you. He makes a mockery of some members of the media. He'll make a mockery of the liberal elite. And they're not used to that. They're really used to people like a President Bush who takes a lot. Of, you know, President Bush took a lot of garbage from folks on the left and folks in the media. And he didn't really respond. He yeah, he was really, kind of just you know, like, yeah, he, he was just I mean, you could say he was gentlemanly. I would actually say he was kind of passive on some of the attacks because he was I mean, I, I briefed him twice in the Oval Office. He was not a dumb man at all. And, and that everybody was running around. Yeah. This George W. Bush is so dumb. No human being could speak to that guy for five minutes about anything and say, yeah, he's dumb. I mean, that was it was just a slur. And it was this joke that became kind of fashionable in pop culture. Oh, George W. Bush is so stupid. Mm -hmm. And I always thought this is kind of a test. People that are making Bush's so dumb jokes don't know anything, actually. Right. They're just they're just parroting what they've been told. But, you know, one thing that I thought about, because when, when we first started doing media together, uh, it was right uh, around the time and right after. Uh, obviously, Palin had uh, had had lost, right? But but it was still right. when Palin had a lot of you know had a lot of currency and a lot of people paying attention. And there was a part of me that was like, I get, and the things that they did instead of a Palin were in some way. I mean, to this day, I'm actually shocked by some of the stuff, some of the the mainstream publications that ran with insane conspiracy theories. But you thought to yourself, they hate this woman because culturally she's so different from them and is like a life's representation representation of so much that they dis that they have disdain for right she's 
got a career, but she's also a mom and she's got a bunch of kids and she's pro-life and she's and she likes hunting and she's a you know attractive female. And you go down this right. whole list and you're like, you get why for a lot of coastal liberal types, she was like the Antichrist. Right. I mean, they just, they just freaked out. Right. It wasn't OK. But you but with Trump, you've got this guy who we know is from our hometown. He's a New Yorker. He's a billionaire. He's right. on TV. He's friends with like the Clintons and all this other stuff from back in the day. And to, he's a bigger antichrist to them. It's crazy. Yeah, I, but I actually think that makes sense because I think they expect him. They expected him to be a loyalist. Yeah, he's they a traitor. To the, you're right. Us. He's a traitor. Yeah. He's one of us. He hangs out with the elite in New York. He's got a lot of money. He's made a lot of money in business. You know, he, a lot of liberal media loved him back in the day. They loved to have him on. They loved to have him on the radio and joke with him. Everything was, was funny and great. But when you depart from that, when you when you're when you're from that a little bit from that circle and then you step out of it and you're like, OK, I'm going to go over here now. They can't they can't understand that. And that enrages them. Whereas with the Sarah Palin, they could pass it off as, oh, she was never one of us. She's not as good as, as us. She doesn't understand New York City. She's from all the way over there in Wasilla. You know, they just they were very dismissive of her because she came from a de- very different life, whereas he. They were like, wait a minute. He's, You're he's right. It's 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 so, a difference of of a of the disdain that comes from condescension, which is, I think, what they had for Sarah Palin to the disdain of of betrayal. And they think that Trump I right. mean, I said he was a traitor to them. They think that Trump has engaged in a kind of coastal class betrayal. And and I think it also empowers him because he, he's not impressed by any of these people. He doesn't care. Yeah. And it was funny, too, because I had interviewed, you know, I followed Sarah Palin quite a bit back then. And and she was one of the reasons I got interested in politics, not because I was, you know, I agreed with her on everything or what really drove it was that I saw the media destroying this woman. And I I, it, it really spurred me to go say, well, who is she? What's she about? Why do they hate her so much? And that led me to look into her record and, and be really woke, as they say, to what goes on when somebody who's conservative from a place that's not New York City, that's not D.C., penetrates the system, what they do to her. And I interviewed her ultimately several times. I went to a premiere that she did in Pella, Iowa, where I sat for, we sat for hours, me, her, and Todd, and a bunch of people. Andrew Breitbart was there at the time, and we talked to them. And she's She's also not dumb, I will have people know. If you really study her record in Alaska, it, it was actually quite good. And it's just, it, it was a lesson to me very early on in my political career of what the media does and the way that they sabotage people who they're really afraid of. And I think with Trump, there is some of that going on. I do, I do think that he sometimes hurts himself by some of the things he says. And he, you know, he, th- there are things he could do a little differently in terms of his delivery, for sure. But when the media gets afraid of somebody, forget it. I mean, they will come for you until they drown you. And I think the challenge with Trump is because he's on Twitter, because he fights back, because he's dismissive of them and he'll be sarcastic and he'll make fun of them. They have this challenge of, wow, this guy's just it's not working. What do we do? And that's where the derangement syndrome sets in. Yeah, no, I think that's that's astute analysis of it. Um, Let's talk about your book, Jedediah. It's 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 out for pre-order now. Do not disturb. Yes. Do not, whichever one yeah, pre-order means you can go on Amazon and get it, and that means that when it's out, out, you can it'll just show up at your door. It'll download to your Kindle. I'm a big Kindle guy these days. Have been for a while. 
Do not disturb how I ghosted myself on a take back my life. You don't know this because I haven't had a chance to talk to you about this yet. I do whole segments on this show about how I am, am like a, a strict get off my lawn guy when it comes to I don't want cell phones on the table when I'm eating. I don't want cell phones getting looked at while I'm having a conversation with someone. I, you know, and I think this is important. You know, this is a whole new area of human relations where we need to set some rules because we're not savages. Yeah, you're, you have to read this book. If I didn't know that about you, but if, if that's how you feel, this is the book for you. And basically what it was, it, my real life spurred this book, which was that I was realizing that I had an addiction to technology. I was on my phone all the time. I was texting constantly, social media, obsessed, reading the columns all day long, Instagram, Facebook. I had my phone out all the time when I was with other people, family or friends. I would have, the, you know, my phone set to notification. So the second it would buzz, I would look at it. I was constantly, constantly on the phone. It was in the middle if I was, you know, if Jeremy and I, in the beginning of when we met, would, would be, actually, no, Jeremy I was pretty good with, but the guy before Jeremy, not so good. Oh, that's actually one of the things that spurred the book, too, which people are going to love. I write about an ex-boyfriend in there who I call Kyle, um, who had a whole separate life in his phone. It was actually, I wound up looking at his phone, and I discovered that the person that I thought I was dating, I actually wasn't dating, and uh, he was living a very separate, very dark life full of drugs and cheating and all sorts of things. So when I had the parallel of my own addiction to technology and what it was doing to my relationship, my friendship, and then I had this experience where I was dating someone who had a whole separate life in their phone, and I realized wow, in the wrong hands, what are these phones doing? What are they inspiring in people? How are they inviting people to behave? What's going on? It led me to, to really delve, and I share a whole bunch of personal anecdotes about my own slip-ups. Some of them are embarrassing. Some of them, some of them you're gonna, people are going to laugh. Some people are going to say, oh, my God, this girl's crazy. I didn't, nothing was off the table. And in the end, I share some solutions as to how I kind of fix the problem for myself. And to be clear, I don't blame the device. You know, I'm a personal responsibility girl. So this is kind of a personal responsibility manifesto. I don't blame the phone. I don't blame the iPad. I don't even blame Silicon Valley, who, by the way, is inventing these apps in a certain way to get us addicted. And they're studying behavioral scientists that know how to get people addicted and then programming these things to make us like a bunch of puppets. Yep. I'm not even mad at them, and yep. I don't blame them. I really blame people. I blame me. I take the responsibility and I say, look, we have the power to fix this and here's how I fix it. And I share a bunch of solutions. So this book was like therapy for me, but it was also a problem. I saw that everywhere I looked, I saw people that were losing themselves. And I wanted to just say to everybody, hold on a second. Let's just let's just take a look at what we're doing. And if people decide they read it and they say, you know what, I want to be addicted to technology that's okay. That's your decision. I'm all for, you know, you live the lives that you think are best for you. But if there's any way I could do some eye-opening here and cause people to reflect on their own life, I'm telling you, you're going to read this thing and you're going to be like, wow, I've been there. Oh my God, did I do that? Man. Oh, in fact, I, 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 I wish that. I had, I wish I'd had a copy of your book a few times, Jed and I, where I've sat down with people at dinner and it's actually happened with, with, uh, with a, a guys, you know, dudes who are friends of mine. We're sitting down to like, you know, uh, having a steak as a couple of bros. And all of a sudden, this happens with finance guys in particular, you know, the iPhone comes out on the table and then, you know, the BlackBerry would come out, too. I'm like, you're going double phone on the table. 
are, are you opening yeah. a radio shack? Are you MacGyver? Like, what do you think? That you, you, you think you think I want to see like the lights going off and stuff while I'm eating? What do you think? And then some people go, well, I don't want the radiation in my pocket. It's like, you know what? I, I think you're going to be okay for the one hour we have dinner. You've been carrying the phone around in your pocket all day, right? But you, you know, I, I will say this too. Yeah. You know, if you if you ever have that experience of you leave your phone somewhere, you know it's safe, you know you don't need it, but you still feel a little bit of anxiety. Think yep. about why. I, it happens to I, me. I, I tell stories. I tell stories about losing my phone in a taxi and what actually goes through my psychological being at that moment and, and what happens so that people can really feel how I was completely caught up in this whole thing. I tell stories about how I was treating Instagram and how kind of sad and, and pathetic it is if you look back. And it's embarrassing to tell some of these stories, but I felt it was really important to do it. And I even get into things like sex robots. I mean, nothing's off the table in the book. I mean, my personal stories get crazy. I talk about my family. I talk about an ex-boyfriend. I talk about my marriage now and how it's different. Sex robots. We talk about Silicon Valley brainwashing us. Um, but I will say it's, it's a positive book. It's, it's one of those books that's funny. Um, I just taped, I did a pre-tape for Dr. Oz for his podcast uh, yesterday. And the producer walked out. And she ran up to me and she said, this book changed my life because I was doing this and I'm going to stop. And I was like, oh, that felt so good to have someone say that because that's all I want is I want people to just open their eyes and have an awareness because that's step one, right? And then once you have an awareness and you're in charge and you're in the driver's seat, then you're making the decisions. You're not just cycling through what Silicon Valley or whoever wants you to do or just, oh, this is the cool thing, so let me do it. Oh. This is the status quo. Let me be part of it. No, you're back to being a thinking person where you're like, look, technology is booming. This is the role I wanted to play in my life. These are the things that enhance my life. These are the things that don't. And this is what I'm going to do about it. That's really all the book is about. But it's pretty it's pretty funny. And uh, some things my mom was like, did you really tell that story? I said, you bet I did. So it's juicy, uh, as, as is everything that well, I, that I, I, I can tell everybody listening. And I wasn't I wasn't planning on letting him all those. But Jedediah is the only conservative media person that I've ever gone to for life advice. <laughs> so there you go. So and that's that's like back in the day. I'd be like, Jedediah, I need some life advice. She's like, I got you. And we would talk about things. I now you. you can get that same kind of life advice in book form there for you whenever you want. So the book is Do Not Disturb How I Ghosted My Cell Phone to uh, take back my life. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. You'll see Jedediah doing all kinds of things in media and the let's head. Also follow her on Twitter if you don't already. She's got a bajillion followers, but if you're not one of them, you should become one of them. And uh, Jedediah, my friend, always so good to talk to you. And uh, when you and the hubs are in D.C., you let me know. We'll take you out to dinner and we will make sure no cell phones in hand. No cell phones on the table, and I'm down. Yeah, that'd be right. great. I got, I'm due for a trip out to D.C. Thanks for having me, Buck. This was Thanks a so much for joining. We'll talk to you soon. All right, um, all right team, bye. that's going to be it for the uh, Freedom Hut podcast this week. Please make sure you subscribe to it. And, uh, yeah, there you, there you have it. Commie Bear will be back next week. we got a whole other kind of show planned. But for this week, it's just a little chat with Jedediah. Hope you enjoyed what we had to uh, to share there. Let me know your thoughts on the Freedom Hut podcast at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And uh, remember, it's all in the reflexes. <laughs>